You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you again, everyone. Uh, to get us started today, I'll start with an acknowledgement of country. The City of Melbourne respectfully acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we are meeting on, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin, and pays respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. We are committed to our reconciliation journey because at its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples for the benefit of all Victorians. Welcome again. Um, I'm Danielle Dewson. I'm a design manager and principal strategic designer in City Design at City of Melbourne. Um, and we're really excited to bring you this um, of our third excellent series talks at M Pavilion this year. My co-moderator today is Professor Sarah Bell, who is the City of Melbourne um, Chair in Urban Resilience and Innovation at Melbourne Centre for Cities. And this is a collaboration between the City of Melbourne and Melbourne University with an aim to foster research in the field of resilience and innovation. First up, um, housekeeping. Uh, we're filming and taking photos today of the event. Uh, we've got Rodney and his team here, and this material will be used for promotional reasons, for projects um, and social media channels. If you don't wish to be photographed or filmed, let one of the City of Melbourne staff know, which I think most of you are City of Melbourne, <laughs> um, or let um, Rodney know, um, that's completely fine. Otherwise, um, we will take your attendance today as consent to be um, filmed. We also have a graphic recorder here today, Debbie Wood, who's over here. Um, she'll be capturing today's discussion in a really visually um, compelling way, and she has done so for the last two events as well. Um, they're looking great. Um, so feel free to follow her on Deb underscore sketches at Instagram um, or pop by her station at the end of the event um, because effectively it's finished then, which is, yeah, great. Um, and as you've seen, there are QR codes floating around under chairs to stop them blowing away. Um, we're really interested in hearing your feedback as audience members as well on this topic and design excellence more broadly. Um, so please put them in your wallet if you want to do it on the tram home or scan and um, participate in the survey now. Um, and the Slido survey also includes a little portal for you to submit questions. So um, feel free to submit on there. But um, at the end of the discussion, we, we probably would prefer you to put your hand up and say your question out loud. Uh, two options. Um, and before we kick into it as well, I'd just like to acknowledge that um, we did have Johanna um, Trickett, who is an Associate Sustainability Expert at Arup and also one of our technical experts on our Melbourne Design Review Panel. And unfortunately, she couldn't make it tonight. Um, COVID. <laughs> um, so thank you to Amelia Tompkins, who is here today, one of um, Johanna's uh, colleagues at Arup, um, and she'll be brilliant. Uh, so we'll get into it now. I've covered off all that. Uh, so just to start us off, 2021 was a really big year for um, design at the City of Melbourne. Um, and really it recognised many hard years of work um, across the organisation with you know, staff past and present. In October, we launched two design forums, the Design Excellence Advisory Committee and the Melbourne Design Review Panel. And um, these 
two components are really critical to our design excellence program. The planning scheme amendment C308, which is the central um, Melbourne design guide and DDO1 was a, um, a huge milestone for us after many years of work as well. And all of these programs really demonstrate our commitment as a city to delivering and advocating for excellent design outcomes for the city. So in developing this series, which is a key component of our diet design excellence program as well under our advocacy pillar, we were keen to open the debate on what design excellence means. We see this series as a forum to open up with experts from consulting, academia, as well as our community, communities and broader public. This year we explored the themes of equity, resilience and Aboriginality. We are really excited to showcase some of the thinking that is already informing the design at the city and to use these conversations to identify areas for, to, for us to further address in our work. Uh, we hope this will be the first of another series or future series of events, so stay tuned. Um, on tonight's topic of designing excellence, in 2019, City of Melbourne declared a climate and biodiversity emergency, recognising that climate change poses a serious risk to our communities and ecosystems. This week's federal budget announcement did not instill a great deal of hope. Shockingly, it is anticipated that the yearly expenditure on climate change programs will be 35% lower in 2025 and 2026 than it is now. At the same time, this week, Northern New South Wales have just experienced their second major flood event in one month. Um, so look, really today, we hope the panel will, will discuss what it means for us as government, communities, businesses and the organisation to embed and embrace resilience in the way we plan, design and build in our cities. In a resilient Melbourne, our diverse communities are viable, sustainable, livable and prosperous. What does design excellence look like through this lens? Enough from me. Um, I'll now hand over to Professor Sarah Bell, my co-moderator, who will um, now frame today's panel discussion with an introduction on urban resilience. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, great, thank you. It's um, a real pleasure to be here and with all of you uh, here on Wurundjeri land. So I am uh, City, of City of Melbourne Chair in Urban Resilience and Innovation. And it's, you know, as... Um, I was introduced that my role is to work quite closely with uh, colleagues in the City of Melbourne and I work particularly closely with the City Resilience and Sustainable Futures team who are uh, part of Tiffany's um, team in the city. And one of the things that we uh, have done recently, we launched it at the end of last year, was to really help them to think about what does resilience mean? So there was the Resilience Melbourne strategy. There's been a lot of uh, thinking about what urban resilience is over the last uh, decade or more. Um, and particularly in the context of COVID, how do we take another look at that? And the definition that we agreed on is that urban resilience is the capacity for individuals, communities, institutions, businesses and systems within a city to adapt, survive and thrive, uh, no matter what chronic stresses and acute shocks they, ex they experience and to positively transform as a result. So that's a lot of words in a long sentence, but one of the key things that is I think that bit at the end about positively transform uh, as a result of our experience, um, because there's uh, the initial kind of 
you know, simplistic reaction of, of or definition of resilience is that it is about bouncing back. Um, but certainly what we've seen over the first, over the last couple of years is um, maybe we don't want to bounce back. Maybe there are, lots, there are lots of things that are resilient within our society. Fossil fuel industry, domestic violence seems to keep coming back. There are lots of things that are poverty is resilient. Inequality seems to be becoming more ingrained. There are a whole bunch of things that actually maybe we don't want to bounce back to. Um, and what, but what is it that we do want to be able to uh, transform through these um, experiences, not just of shocks like the pandemic and floods and fires, but also, again, recognising that those shocks reveal underlying stresses like poverty, inequality, housing, overcrowding, uh, lack of provision of housing and basic services. Um, so, again, having had those, you know, curtains drawn on some things that were perhaps a bit hidden, um, how do we use these experiences coming out to think about uh, transforming towards a more sustainable, equitable, thriving society? And so then resilience is not just about uh, resilience to resilience of environmental systems or resilience of infrastructure, for instance, and it's not just resilience to climate change or pandemics. It's about thinking what are the qualities of a system, an urban system that help us to be ready for whatever might come our way and also help us to still keep an eye on what is it that we that we're moving towards uh, what and particularly what, might we desire or what might we um, want in our sustainable future, um, all the while keeping an eye out for all of the things that might go wrong. And within our framework that we uh, developed with colleagues in the City of Melbourne, uh, we came up with 10 different qualities and you can... Uh, uh, actually, probably the best way is, if you want to come and see me, I can give you the link. Um, our um, comms on this are perhaps not what they might be due to some recent reorganisation um, in the university. But those qualities include things like, yes, being prepared, knowing what you've got to, um, what's on the horizon, um, and being robust, you know, the ability of systems to, some systems we want to be fail safe. We don't want, um, you know, we don't want our, there, there might be some systems that you know, we simply can't do without. We can't do without an ambulance service, for instance. We want to make sure that our ambulance service is fail safe. There are others that might be safe to fail, so that, you know, if our train systems um, uh, break down, that no one's going to be injured or there's not going to be a catastrophic consequence. Uh, it also includes things like diversity, making sure that there are different... Every system has more than one way of operating and there's a bunch of different... Um, elements and capaci capacities within a system and things like inclusiveness, that we need to have as many different voices and as many different people involved in thinking about what resilience means and what we want from our systems. Uh, so those are some of the things that we've been uh, working with uh, City of Melbourne on thinking about together and we're very happy to kind of start to have these conversations to keep this um, going in these really uh, critical times that we're in. 
Thank you, Sarah. And yes, I think even before tonight's event, we were networking and thinking about ways um, City of Melbourne can partner again with, with yourself and um, your colleagues. Um, now we'll introduce the, the panellists. Um, so I'm going to ask each of you, we'll start with you, Amelia, um, to introduce yourself, um, what your expertise are, where you're working, but also um, we'd like you to let us know what does urban resilience mean to you and what does it look like in your practice? Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, my name's Amelia Tompkins. I'm a climate change and sustainability uh, consultant at Arup. Um, Arup are an engineering consultancy, so I work really with a focus on the built environment, thinking about climate resilience, but how that interacts with decarbonisation, social value, regenerative design and ecology, circular economy, um, and then how that's embedded in, in policy and infrastructure design, precincts, and buildings. Um, so it's a breadth of project types and also I work globally. So um, working half-time in the international development space and seeing how we can embed resilience in, in a developing country context and then also um, in different settings in Australia, including in the city of Melbourne. Um, to me, urban resilience is deeply complex, um, extremely exciting and I think um, the, the most important distinction for me is thinking about assets or individual networks being resilient um, to, to climate change or whatever shocks and stresses there may be. Um, is wildly different to planning assets, networks um, and, and cities to deliver resilience. And I think that that, um, that shift towards planning for resilience and planning for transformation um, is, is really where the um, kind of the key is to unlocking all of those other diverse benefits and striking a balance um, in terms of building and shaping a better world for everyone. Um, yeah, so I think I'll leave it there and I'll, I'll pass it on. <laughs> Thanks, Amelia. Hey, everyone. I am Stephen Webb from Design Inc Architects. I'm the design director in the Melbourne practice. And um, for our practice, and I think for me personally as well, we definitely think, as architects, we've got a real big responsibility to not just look at the broader environment, which you know is really, from a city point of view, the mandate, um, from an urban resilience point of view. But you know, buildings—I don't know what the latest figures are—but it's close to forty percent of emissions and energy come from buildings. So, you know, as the architect in the room, I think you know I'm probably going to focus more on that. Um, so the question should really be do you need a building, you know, so whether that's, you know, a, a nice thing for a design profession have to sort of think about, you know, we all love designing and building, um, but, you know, from an urban resilience point of view, that should be our first question, um, and which is in line with, you know, concepts of conserving and reducing, which you do at an everyday level. Um, we don't often stop enough to think at an infrastructure level, do we actually need to add... Um, so um, that's sort of, I guess, a first question. But as a, probably as a concept, agree, it's really, really complex. I wonder whether we can often simplify things down. Um, I'm a real, you'll hear more of this tonight, but I'm a really big fan of using nature as a model, both in terms of what we build, but also how we think and that systems approach. Um, nature has got so much to teach us. Um, and I think the exact quote, but I know, and a big connection between Yarn Gale and the city of Melbourne, but I think his definition of architecture was the interplay between 
and life and form. And I think at a city level as well, um, that concept that we can't build form without thinking about the interplay with life. Um, and it's probably simplifying a lot of things, but I think if we start with that strategy that we are absolutely part of nature, embedded in nature, and we need to look to nature as a first port of call for resilience. Thanks. Thanks, David. Hello, everyone. I'm Tiffany Crawford. I'm one of the directors of climate change and city resilience at the City of Melbourne. And I proudly job share with, uh, with my job share partner, Krista Milne, and um, really enjoy job sharing with her. And I, I mention that because it is a big part of what I do um, and in creating pathways for other people as well in flexible work. Um, I really loved what you just said about nature and I was going to reflect on that a bit myself tonight. Uh, when I think about resilience, I very much think about uh, our city as an ecosystem and uh, sometimes people struggle with that as a concept, but um, having worked and have the privilege of working at the City of Melbourne now for 16 years, I've learnt that local government and cities are very much an ecosystem. Um, and that ecosystem is the people, it's the buildings, it's how they interact with those buildings, it's about how we uh, interact with nature. Um, and I think the pandemic has taught us more than more than ever has really shone a light on how important that ecosystem is to us as, um, as, as people. Um, what do I do at the City of Melbourne and why is resilience important? Um, our team, our branch looks after uh, uh, driving down the emissions of the city and unfortunately that statistic is even higher in the City of Melbourne. 60% um, uh, of emissions are generated in the City of Melbourne by, by buildings and 66% um, of that, uh, sorry, 66% by buildings and 60% of that is commercial buildings. And it's a nut we haven't cracked and we need to do that in partnership with others. So uh, terrific to hear you reflect on that. We have another team that's very much focused on the resilience of our city um, and another on adapting our city. And lovely to have Elise who leads that team here tonight. Um, so we have a lot to do. As Sarah said, we, uh, as, a, as an organisation, as a council, declared a climate and biodiversity emergency in 2019. And in response to that declaration, have really scrutinised what more can we do? We'd already done a lot. We've been leading in a lot of our initiatives, but we know that we're running out of time and that we need to hit those targets a lot faster than, than we thought we were going to need to do. And that um, in hitting those targets, we can also share our knowledge and our very privileged position with others around the globe and around Australia, and we're, we're actively doing that. So um, a lot I can talk about around our emissions work, but tonight I'll probably be speaking predominantly around how we think about the city as an ecosystem, um, how we are creating a more resilient city or aiming to create a more resilient city in partnership with others, and really importantly, how we are adapting for a changing climate. So that's probably enough from me. Thanks, Tiffany. And I will just thank Tiffany for being here tonight. She's come here in place of an awards. What was the awards you're going to after this? Oh, it's the Night of Nights in Sustainability. It's the Banks Here Awards. And we have been nominated for our work on the UN SDGs. We've localised the UN SDGs as an organisation. So I'm heading off there at 7.30. No so, pressure. Florian, go now. <laughs> 
Well, congratulations on that, Krista. Um, my name is Florian. Uh, I work with Sustainability Victoria. I'm the senior advisor for a circular economy. Um, before that, I worked with the City of Melbourne. I was part of their design team for several years as an industrial designer. Um, by my name and my accent, you might have guessed that I am from the Netherlands. Um, studied there for uh, as an industrial design engineer. Um, so I guess my expertise kind of lies in between design on one end and sustainability on the other end. Um, as you might be aware, the Netherlands is also a little bit further ahead uh, compared to Australia when it comes to a circular economy. Um, so my remit is very much focused on the concept of a circular economy and how Victoria can transition to a circular economy. I think there's a lot to say about circular economy providing a pathway towards resilience for the city uh, and for the state and for the country in general. Uh, there's so many points that it targets, not just environmentally, but also socially and economically. Uh, I guess for me, urban resilience, to add to what has already been mentioned by the panel, um, um, one of the, the, the core parts that really struck home with me from the urban resilience framework was to be future focused. And I think that really resonated with me because my team at Sustainability Victoria is engaged in futures and foresight work at the moment. So what we're trying to do is get a better understanding of what's coming down the line, not just four years from now, but 30 years from now, 50 years from now, and using that kind of knowledge to, to better understand risks, to better understand developments, to better understand where trends, drivers, and weak signals are pointing us and how we can react to that and be proactive rather than reactive. And I think that's a very important principle in resilience is that we are proactive rather than reactive, that we can determine ourselves, this is what we think the vision of the future should be. Um, and this is how we can get there and use that vision to shield ourselves from smaller issues and from smaller problems that might pop up because of KPIs or election cycles. and things like that, and think about the long-term impact of our projects. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm <clears throat> going to go back to our government folks um, to, to just ask you to elaborate a bit more, um, both of you from a local government and state government perspective. Um, in your roles, how are you influencing um, urban resilience, and particularly talking about uh, the climate and biodiversity emergencies. Would you like me to go? I can go first. Um, a big part of our role is around influencing Sarah, uh, and so it's a terrific way uh, to start answering that question. Um, in fact, in the climate and biodiversity emergency, we came up with a 10-point plan that was endorsed by the council, and one of the key planks of that was advocacy, recognising that we do not hold all of the levers in relation to climate. We're a complex society. We're made up of tiers of government, and uh, we have different functions within, within, within society, and it's really important that we're being collaborative in our response to climate change. It's one of the greatest threats that we've ever faced, and it's going to require monumental effort on a scale we've never really seen before. So a big part of our role is advocating to the state and federal government, um, uh, also asking business, developers, um, architects, people that plan our city to really think about how the city is being delivered 
Um, are we providing our infrastructure in the most adaptable way? Are we providing infrastructure that will withstand the shocks and stresses that we know are coming in climate change? So looking at the levers that we do have, such as the planning scheme, um, through different networks, uh, through sharing information, through our role um, in delivering our own assets, uh, our own buildings, our own building stock. Uh, looking around the outside room here, many of you are already tasked with that design and doing a fantastic job at it. Um, and continuing to make sure that our city is evolving to, to withstand the increasing heat that we are uh, anticipating, um, uh, the increasing storm events, um, importantly looking at how do we de deliver uh, integrated water management, how do we deliver flood, um, flood mitigation um, in these intense storm events that are coming. So uh, lots of different mechanisms and push-pull factors. Um, and then I think also starting to opening up uh, to look at regulation and, and how can we influence regulation. And there's various programs that we've looked at. Um, so I've spoken about partnership and I've spoken a bit about advocacy um, and delivering our own assets um, in the most adaptable and resilient way that we can. I think I'll probably leave it there. Hand over to you, Florian. Yeah, from a state perspective, it's it's very much the same. It's It's about that advocacy and I think that Sustainability Victoria plays a big role in providing a point of support for a lot of other organisations and parties trying to engage in this type of work. Um, so some of the, the pillars that make up our work at the moment are based around uh, innovation and investment, you know, doing the research to understand what is needed by industry, what are the barriers, and providing uh, financial support for parties to, to engage in this kind of work, uh, but also community action, that we empower our local communities to take action. and. Uh, we all know that sustainability and resilience takes very much uh, uh, requires a local context to be considered. And there's nobody who, who knows the local context better than local communities. So providing communities with enabling them to take action is a very strong one for us. And behavior change and education is also very important uh, as one of our pillars where we try to help communities understand what kind of behavior changes are needed to bring these changes about and, and how we can help them to, with education and facilitation of, of these kind of conversations. Uh, I think for, for my work directly being um, involved with the circular economy, that's very much uh, a very broad framework of which resilience is a, is a natural part. I think um, from an environmental point of view, it's, it's quite simple in you know, keeping materials in use, designing out waste and pollution, regenerating our natural system, that, that goes a long way in creating resilience. But also from an economic point of view and from a social point of view, I think it's important to mention that, you know, when we keep materials in use, when we are less reliant on international supply chains by, um, by enabling local manufacturing, for example, that goes a long way in creating economic resilience as well. And when we keep materials in use and, and focus on, on the local aspect of repair and reuse and refurbishment that makes sure that we are not just transforming all of our natural assets into financial assets using you know, cheap labour and those kind of things, but do that in an equitable and socially responsible way, which is important for the social um, resilience as well. 
Yeah, so I think one of the things you uh, sort of started to open up a little bit about there, Tiffany, was regulation. And I'm kind of interested from a state government point of view. So my, um, I'm a massive fan of the circular economy and um, we're talking about how we might start to uh, look at uh, retrofitting uh, buildings in the CBD, some of those commercial buildings that are responsible for so many emissions. Um, and the circular economy is a really important narrative for that. Um, but I'm sort of struck by your talking as a state government um, uh, public servant and about enabling business and empowering communities and like it's, um, you know, we'll just, you know, like a let's invite everybody to the circular economy picnic and eventually everybody will, you know, realise that it's such a wonderful thing and start reusing all of our materials. Um, is there a role for government at any level to start to actually set some rules of the game that say, you know, that's no longer allowed, um, we have to do it, or you have to do it this way now, um, partly in order to achieve all of those bigger societal benefits around economic resilience and supply chains and affordability and so on. Uh, and perhaps you might also reflect on... Um, if you have any knowledge of the EU regulations or other parts of the world that are actually starting to perhaps be a bit bolder in setting some rules that will then drive some of these systems changes in, uh, in resilience. Yeah, absolutely. I think that regulation is definitely a part of that. Uh, I will say that with the environment portfolio within the Victorian government, uh, we've got obviously uh, department uh, DELP and then Sustainability Victoria plays very much a supportive role in trying to do the research and the community engagement and then it's mainly the EPA who has a regulatory function. I think our approach at the moment is to very much try to tag along with the, the innovators and the early birds to the conversation and uh, we've noticed that especially when it comes to um, producer responsibility schemes and stewardship schemes and for parties to take responsibility of what they are producing and putting out in the world. Uh, mandatory schemes that are heavily regulated tend to be um, not heavily favoured in Australia and especially the federal government has traditionally had a, had a view that regulation is not really the way to go. I think that we will have to, though. I think that our hand will be forced in the near future, if not already, that we need to start doing that. Once we have the early adopters on board and once we have circular economy and those conversations in mainstream media, that's great. But there will always be the laggards and there will always be people that benefit from keeping things the way they are. And regulation really will be one of the only responses to that, I think. Uh, especially when looking at, for example, the European Union and the great work that they are doing. There's um, a great example from the Netherlands, for example, where they regulate the kind of advertising that you can use for, um, you know, to, to put a limit to greenwashing, for example. So the Royal Dutch Shell, which is a company we all know very well, they put out a, an advertisement, I think, at one of their petrol stations in the Netherlands, which said, oh, if you come fill up your gas with us, all of our all of this is carbon offset, it's carbon neutral, it's great, you don't have to feel guilty about filling up your car with us. And the regulator said, well, look, uh, there's no way that we, you can prove this, there's no way that the consumer can verify this, so get rid of it. 
and they had to delete that kind of advertising. And that's the great power that regulation can have. And Australia is not there yet, I think. Um, but yeah, we, we will need to at some point in the future, I think. Yeah. Back to you. Did you want to add anything to Oh, I, I agree with you, Florian. I think that uh, I could talk about this all night mainly because I'm also a lawyer and I worked as legal counsel for the City of Melbourne for 10 years and I'm really interested in this regulatory space. Um, one example I was just going to speak about that I'm really motivated by is the City of New York have just introduced a new local law uh, to actually look at like a mini carbon trading scheme or emissions um, emissions scheme uh, and they are going to find the, uh, the production of emissions from their buildings. Um, so I'm super excited by that. Look out, everybody at the City of Melbourne. I'll be um, looking at this one. Don't think we quite have the powers. And this is the frustration, is that local governments around the world, state governments around the world and federal governments all have different powers and regulatory environments. So it's really hard sometimes to pick up a policy or a, a, re a regime from somewhere else and apply it here. And then that's so dependent too on politics. And we've all been very frustrated by our political system. Um, uh, and, and the four-year cycle that we seem to be stuck in and when there isn't the political will or perhaps the knowledge in the population of, of the issues that continue to be entrenched, um, particularly when they come to such a big structural issue and reform that's required for climate change, um, it, it, you could be kind of start to despair, but I'm not. I'm going to remain optimistic. Uh, I think that when it comes to regulation in order to battle this issue of political will and um, uh, people's attitudes to, to, to climate and to, to change and to resilience, we have to provide push-pull factors. They have to be carrots and, the, and sticks. So sometimes it takes a bit of time and patience. Uh, if we provide enough of the carrots and the incentives and the building of the knowledge and the provision of jobs and training, then in time we can get closer to the regulation. Brilliant. Thank you, Tiffany. Uh, I'll now move over to Amelia and Stephen and thank you for sitting so ordered for me without <laughs> without any prompt. Um, we'd like, I'll start with you, Amelia. Um, can you talk about a project where you've um, utilised a resilient framework or approach to design and what were the lessons or um, successes from that intervention or project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I might speak to two projects. Um, for context, I work across around 15 projects at a time. So um, over my career, I've, I've been able to um, really experience and contribute to um, a real range of projects and the challenges and, and opportunities and success factors are quite different at different scales and different contexts. Um, the first one that I'll speak to is about how we're looking at downscaling these really ambitious holistic frameworks like the UN SDGs, which the Sustainable Development Goals, which City of Melbourne is, has been localising as well for the past couple of years, um, but also the Planetary Boundaries Framework, which I think is a really critical one um, when thinking about resilience. And, it, and in my mind, it, it sets the, the perimeter um, of what uh, our ecological ceiling is, is kind of the, the constraints which we need to work within. Um, because if the biodiversity emergency um, is a real sign that, you know, we, we cannot function as, and our human systems will collapse if we don't have that ecological um, foundations to, to thrive in. Um, 
So that piece of work was looking at how we dynamically downscale the planetary boundaries framework to a city level and how that then sets the, um, the planning policies for an entire city. Um, this was based in Asia and the lessons learned from that project were that um, you can't be too specific. And I think where a lot of value is sometimes lost is um, in overly ambitious and quite high level objectives that are then difficult to quantify um, and articulate the value. Um, they just don't stand up against our really traditional accounting mechanisms and, and methods. Um, typically cost will win um, if you're unable to articulate the value of resilience investments, um, which can be particularly difficult uh, when thinking about climate change as, as the shocks and stresses, um, given that a good outcome may mean that nothing happens um, and you don't notice any change because you were able to, to withstand and, and continue as you were. Um, so in that project, we were lo really looking um, at social benefits and um, quantifying the value um, and, and delivery of resilience from nature um, and trying to frame some regenerative design actions for cities, precincts, um, infrastructure and buildings to embed, setting the targets which would deliver on decarbonisation and balancing that with resilience so that we weren't gold plating everything to withstand um, a sort of a worst case emission scenario out to 2100. But um, I think that sometimes in trying to make a building survive in terms of the materials and, and the flood infrastructure and drainage infrastructure, um, if that's surviving up until 60 degrees, you won't have people to use the building anymore. Um, so we need to make sure we're balancing that with low carbon options so that we're not locking ourselves into that worst case scenario. Um, and having adaptation pathways along the way with trigger points of when we will need to transition to a more substantial um, and I guess a more resilient option um, to whatever the challenges are that we're facing at that point. Um, so that was a very large scale project. Um, and then I guess the lessons learnt from a, a more local project, um, I guess quite similar approaches were taken. Uh, recently I've been working on a hospital master plan um, and also a university master plan. And the focus there has really been what lessons can we learn from place-based place-based systems thinking? Um, how do the individuals, the people, um, direct the standards and the targets that we're, we're setting at the precinct level? And how can um, supporting those communities and, and individuals um, within that precinct, how can they then support and deliver a thriving community beyond in, in Melbourne? Um, and that's been really fascinating um, working at that scale, particularly drawing upon um, traditional owner knowledge um, to uh, land management practices, to water management, um, connection to country and embedding those in, in how we plan within the ecological ceiling. Thank you, Amelia. Stephen, did you have anything to add? Yes, hard to know um, what to focus. I probably won't focus too much on specific building, um, but maybe talk a little bit about you know, lessons learned maybe the last 20 years or so of trying to build and resilient projects. And although, yes, with the City of Melbourne um, audience, I should at least maybe reference CH2. Um, I was just telling Lovanya before that 
I did a, was asked to do a 20-year retrospective last week. It was actually 20 years since the, that project began. Um, Council House 2, for those who don't know, is City of Melbourne's home on um, Little Collins Street. Um, but yeah, I think there's certainly a narrative and a journey there from resilience that the industries pursued that I think we're at, a, we're at actually quite a unique phase now. I mean, back then, 20 years ago, there was no formal benchmarking tools. There was no regulation. Um, I mean, Green Star just happened towards the end of that project. So everyone was, everything was sort of first principles. And, you know, I think the industry, um, you know, <laughs> reacted to CH2 at the time because of that. Um, and then I think there was a real period of doldrums, I feel, in terms of um, resilience and pushing beyond, I guess, business as usual, you know, for the next 10, 10 years or so, there was a lot of mandatory, oh, you've got to meet, meet five stars or you've got to do this. And there was some regulation in there. Um, building codes still lag behind. But yeah, I think cutting to the chase, where we are now, things have caught up a lot. We've probably got too many tools and benchmarks and options, you know, like I tried, tried to fit them all on one slide the other day and I couldn't, you know. Um, but um, the way we... Um, in the practice really try and unravel all this again is to think about what would nature do and um, been really using the analogy of a forest a lot um, in terms of thinking about cities and buildings um, and somehow using that we're able to identify the importance of not just the quantitative aspects of resilience so your normal sort of conserving harvesting renewing everything that's really important from an energy water waste, you know, getting positive about all those, all those streams. Having that as your strong base, you know, and a lot of those are non-negotiables, but um, what we've really learnt from feedback and the buildings that are really successful is that's just the bottom of things. We've actually got to look at the experiential aspects of it, what a healthy building is. And I think that's where it really ties into resilience. So... Um, you know, in the branches of the forest, we've got to look at the, the belonging and the joy and the beauty that people need to thrive. Um, much like what you were saying at the beginning, you know, these non-infrastructure elements are just as important in terms of creating resilience. Um, so, yeah, we're really big advocates for a really holistic approach to a built form. Um, and I'll probably just finish with, with naming a pro another project and... Um, for the reason that it is a bit of a first, it's um, a, a community building for Moreland out at Glenroy, which we just completed, which um, has had really amazing um, credentials in terms of what local government has prepared to do. It's actually certified as passive house, which um, a first passive house community building, but I think that sort of speaks to, I guess, where you want to go in terms of some of those minimum quantitative aspects, you know, a really well-sealed thermal envelope. You know, it's what we should be doing as a starting point if we are going to build a new building. Um, but they've also embraced um, the Living Building Challenge, which, for those that know, um, is much broader, wide-ranging, uh, and has more of those experiential aspects and connections with nature. So to see the industry, um, particularly at government level, starting to embrace and actually put put their hand on their heart when it comes to um, both of those types of frameworks and tools is really encouraging. Um, so I would just put a call out to all of the architects and designers to follow suit and, you know, just stop thinking about building as image and form and think about what you can do in terms of um, making a healthy building. 
Thanks, Stephen. And I think, Amelia, touching on your um, response about the importance of precincts and you, Stephen, about people's connection with nature, I think in Melbourne, not only do we have our established urban areas like the CBD, but we're also flanked by three huge urban renewal areas where we are effectively starting from scratch in on land that is so constrained, whether it's flood-prone, limited canopy cover, um, and there is this real need to, you know, how do we actually ingrain resilience in the emergence of those precincts. Um, and I think Florian, someone who's sort of worked between strategy and delivery, I guess the question maybe for you all is, you know, how do we bridge those gaps? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us would, uh, would love to hear uh, a simple, concrete answer to that question. Um, and I'm not sure if I, if I have the answer to that question either, but I will say that, um, you know, collaboration and consideration is, is important there, uh, especially the, the multidisciplinary side of the story. Uh, it's, you know, when we start having conversations about um, circular and resilient precincts, we find that, yes, architecture, of course, is, is important. Urban planning is important, urban design, landscape architecture, but also the social aspects, the the the, the non-physical infrastructure that we spoke about, the, the relation with nature, the relation with water, etc. There's so many aspects to that to, to make that work that the only way that you're going to be able to bridge proper strategy with action is if you have a multidisciplinary team working on it from start to finish. Uh, I think that at least that that is one of the components, I think, of success there. And I would say that... Um, that it's vitally important that organizations working in that space facilitate collaboration between departments and having those multidisciplinary conversations between teams and promoting their, their staff and their employees to, to have those conversations with each other. And it's very easy, especially for government, to be like very siloed in our approach and to be, this is my remit, this is your remit, and for just cost uh, benefits and time benefits. Let's just stay within our lanes uh, and and prevent any overlap because that's more efficient. Um, but some of that might be true, but you will also eliminate some of those conversations that need to happen multidisciplinary in multidisciplinary ways, and you're creating barriers for people to talk to each other. So I would say if people are interested in things outside of their remit, outside of their job role. Um, celebrate that and make sure that there's room for conversation for people to to talk to each other, talk to other teams and to consider the perspective of other teams they might not be directly involved with. Uh, yeah, I think one of the, um, just talking about collaboration and working in teams, I think one of the things that I've started to get a bit of a sense of just maybe in the last few years, maybe it's a COVID thing, um, is perhaps within the architecture profession in uh, specifically, moving away from the architect kind of approach and really pulling back and seeing architecture and design as this collaborative process and that if you've got one person out the front with their big name on it, then maybe you've done it wrong. Um, and I think that's something that is very encouraging for lots of reasons of inclusivity and culture and so on. Um, and... And from my own profession of engineering for um, having been in the UK for 
15 years, there was always, 15 years ago, there was this big angst of why can nobody name an engineer? Everybody can name the Zahidids, Norman Fosters, etc. <laughs> and I was always like, well, that's a good thing. That's because we're behind the scenes and if engineering works, no one notices and that's good for us. Um, so, you know, so you only know that, yeah, engineers are only on the news when they fail. So, um, so and engineering is a very, is a much more collaborative um, process of accountability and checking and so on. So I'm just wondering if, you know, any of the panellists want to talk about some of those, you know, perhaps cultural elements of how we do design that then, you know, lead to these more resilient, less egotistical, less fragile kinds of buildings, infrastructures and systems. I'll jump in. Um, I... Uh, I can't talk about egos in the profession. Um, <laughs> Not the law, no. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not going to talk about, you know, design and, and those egos. Um, but I will talk about the importance that of collaboration in a traditionally siloed space. Of You know, government is renowned for its silos. And it's really important that we continue to lift our game and work together and collaborate. And I've seen a real shift at the City of Melbourne in, in probably the last five, ten years in our ability to collaborate and to learn from one another and to, to work across the organisation. Um, and that's been brilliant. Um, where we consider ourselves in climate change and city resilience, we're a branch within the organisation. Um, we consider ourselves as service partners and we don't own the response to the climate emergency. We have very much been trying to um, elevate other people's knowledge, to embed a knowledge within our own design standards, um, to work collaboratively with the design branch, um, with the service delivery agents, the people that are uh, responsible for planning. Um, and so that collaboration is, is absolutely critical uh, because that influence, um, you know, hopefully, eventually, there is no need for a climate change and city resilience branch because we're redundant because the work's being done by everybody else. So I think that's a good model. I don't know how you then apply that to private practice. That's probably why I had a bit of a mental <laughs> blank. I think uh, my dream reality is that my job doesn't exist um, and neither do yours um, because it's part of everyone's role. Um, Arab's made a big commitment to um, make sure every single one of our projects is A, um, reducing climate change and, and trying to stay within that 1.5 degree temperature rise and B, um, designed to be resilient to a worst case scenario, um, not necessarily in the, in the immediate future, but planning for that to be the case in an adaption and adaptation um, pathways planning approach. So what we're doing for that at the moment is we're really trying to share ownership through co-creation of um, and, and co-identification of understanding the risks designing um, and responding to those and making sure they're well adopted by the stakeholders across the whole asset life cycle and system life cycle. Um, and it's been an interesting journey um, to be upskilling our, our engineers and our consultants and economists over the past few years. And, and um, I think it's been challenging in both directions to understand the really entrenched um, methodologies which we're constantly challenging but equally we don't have all of the answers either. Um, we can't neatly 
quantify the really complex relationships between different um, facets of resilience and we can't neatly articulate and measure and report on all of the benefits that we're planning for and that's in a real conflict with with other um, professions sometimes and other disciplines. So um, when thinking about making sustainability and resilience um, the norm for all disciplines, um, it's, it's really an evolving, um, an evolving challenge and opportunity. Excellent, thank you. And look, we'll, um, Tiffany, you've got eight it's minutes. Okay, don't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll get to our last question, and this is the Excellent City series, so we do want to bring it back to, you know, what is design excellence? So, Amelia, if you'd like to start with this question. So, what we'd like to know, in, in your mind, you know, what does design excellence look like in the context of urban resilience? And I guess, are there any initiatives or projects that, that bring you hope in terms of, you know, creating um, resilient cities? I think everyone's touched on um, some really exciting opportunities. Um, Nature-based solutions is one of those, um, really trying to to emulate and replicate nature in the way that we we plan um, the built form. It's already servicing um, humans and, and communities so well. So, um, of course, it's something that we'd like to replicate. Um, Projects that bring me hope, I guess, um, or initiatives that are bringing me hope are, are everything that's happening. It's really um, more and more people are understanding that sustainability does deliver value. Um, that's kind of trickling down from um, sustainable finance. Like it's it's really starting to infiltrate all of the sectors um, from the most traditional to the, the ones that we've already got on board um, who we're preaching to the choir to. Um, I think that that articulation of value, um, there's some exciting work that DELP is doing and how to, to quantify and um, measure natural, um, natural capital and ecosystem services and, and then um, trying to understand how, how we can um, adapt what we already have so um, to go back to your, your original question, do we actually need a building? Um, I think if we can, can consider how we might interact with our existing cities um, and, and enhance those through, um, through social cohesion and green infrastructure, blue infrastructure, um, the circular economy, closing the loop on what we already have, um, but not closing connections. Um, to the systems beyond. Yeah, and I think if you do, if you are going to have a building, you need to actually build something. Then it's got to be framed in a positive way that it's actually it's actually creating something more than it's taking away. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about. I mentioned some projects, but um, yeah, I sort of think design excellence. You know, I, I will continue the nature theme, but. Um, you know, we've probably from a, a city point of view as well as a building point of view, we're still, we're still stuck in that machine, 20th century machine aesthetic, um, object aesthetic. I mean, I, um, the other day I was, as you do occasionally, Googling, you know, top 10 sustainable buildings in the world and, you know, still half of them, and they've got like great credentials, but still half of them come up as highly um, double, triple glazed um, 
you know, boxes. You know, they're, they're doing well, but, you know, it's not, it's not what we want to, not where we want to be going. And I still think, you know, as, again, as design professionals, we've got a huge responsibility to, to break down that, that paradigm. Um, so anyway, I thought I would, to continue that theme of, um, of nature, I thought I'd just, I can't say it any better than what Bill McDonough, um, for those who don't know Bill McDonough, he's a really um, hugely um, uh, environmental and sustainable advocate architect. Um, and again, he's one that very much advocates the concept of buildings um, that mesh with nature. I think he said famously, um, buildings as trees, cities as forests. Um, but I, I can't say this any better and it'll, it'll save time as well if I, if I do this. Um, what, but what if buildings were alive? What if our homes and our workplaces were like trees, living organisms, participating productively in their surroundings? Imagine a building enmeshed in the landscape that harvests the energy of the sun, sequesters carbon and makes oxygen. Imagine on-site wetlands and botanical gardens recovering nutrients from circulating water fresh air, flowering plants, and daylight everywhere. Beauty and comfort for every inhabitant. A roof covered in soil and sedum to absorb the falling rain. Birds nesting and feeding in the building's verdant footprint. In short, a life support system in harmony with energy flows, human souls, and other living things. Hardly a machine at all. Do you expect me to follow that? I know, that was beautiful. <laughs> I can break it up with a meme that's currently um, <laughs> posted above our tea station at work and it said, uh, what if trees gave off Wi-Fi signals? We'd be putting them everywhere. It's a shame they only give us oxygen. I <laughs> uh, love that. That's easier to follow. Thank you. Uh, that's just so beautiful. Um, and so a good segue, I suppose, would be drawing on the examples of projects that people would have heard celebrated many, many times, like the urban forest strategy. Uh, that is very much placing nature at the centre of our city. Um, the Greening the Laneways program was really, it's a really brilliant program. It's a lot, a lot smaller scale, but um, I'd love to think about that as a more, I think it's a terrific example of a resilient building project in that um, I was actually involved in it and kind of on the periphery and the uh, City of Melbourne were taking submissions um, at the time and it brought communities along laneways together in a way they've never interacted before. Um, and then started to think about these grey spaces that could then become green spaces and then what more did those green spaces then provide to them, um, the health benefits, the social benefits, and then, of course, the economic benefits. And for some people, they couldn't care less about the health and the social benefits, but the economic benefits um, they'll take. Uh, so we don't really care as long as there are benefits um, and they're delivering those benefits to the social and the health of, of our city. I think they're terrific examples and, again, they, they, they draw on nature and those um, really resonate with people, I find, the more nature-based solutions. I love to, um, love to see designers of the city, whether they be in the public sector or in the private sector, to really think a lot harder about how to make our assets work more adaptably, how to provide more um, rather than just an asset in a place. 
um, that just is, is there for the client brief, how do we provide more? How do we make it work harder? Can we provide community benefit as well as so, uh, other social benefits? Um, you know, some terrific examples around the world of integrated water management or flood mitigation um, from the Netherlands uh, where they are providing um, sports infrastructure that also captures stormwater. You know, we can think about our parks, not just as places where people go and play and hang out and enjoy and have a picnic, but also that cool our city, that offer opportunity to soak up that excess water that we know is um, already here and is going to keep coming through storm, in increasing stormwater events. Um, so really thinking about assets uh, through a more complex lens I think is, is really important. And I'm really inspired by that thinking and that nature thinking and thinking about, like I said at the start, the city as an ecosystem. Thanks, Tiffany. Florian? Yeah, um, to follow up on that, I mean, all of those are wonderful thoughts already. And please, Tiffany, feel free to run off if you need to leave, of <laughs> course. Um, I think what I would add kind of goes back to my first point about resilience as well as having that future focus I think having the future focus is so important and to be proactive rather than reactive in our design practices. I think that if we, you know, if we have a, if we think about longevity and long-term impacts of our projects and we think about, well, what will the impact of our projects be 20, 30, 50 years from now? Well, that kind of forces you to ask yourself, well, what should that look like 50 years from now? And if you have a vision of what that looks like 50 years from now, well, you better have a good idea of what you want that future to look like, right? And I think that that's an important thing to, to consider in design practice as well, because if you have that future vision and the whole team is on agreement that that is what we like to achieve, then smaller issues, small shocks, um, the team is more resilient to that. I think that those, um, you know, minor KPIs or election cycles or those kind of setbacks become less a focus point, which is really important. Um, and of course, that's, that's easier said than done. Uh, so I think another point that I'd like to mention is evaluation and reflection is to embed within our existing design practices uh, uh, a tendency to evaluate and to reflect on what's already been done does this project actually hit our targets? Are our designs being used the way we intended? You know, if we fitted our new building with a brand new innovative HVAC system, is the maintenance crew actually taking care of it so it actually works? Or our landscaping materials, are they actually being recovered and reused? And I think that evaluation and reflection is really the basis of learning in, in design projects and should be the basis to form the evidence base for our future projects. So that's, that's definitely a, a core tenant of, of resilient and design excellence, I think. And when it comes to projects that give me hope, I mean, just the fact that we are out here having this conversation is a really good one. And I have to give props to the city of Melbourne and the city design team in particular for listening and to starting this conversation, which is, yeah, makes me very optimistic about our resilient future. Thank you. Thanks, Florian. And Sarah, before we finish, what's bring, what brings you hope? Um, I'm hopeful um, about conversations we've been having with City of Melbourne about retrofitting and generally about the um, 
number of projects that are coming through that are really starting with not just do you need a building, but what can we do with the buildings that we've already got? You know, most of the buildings that we're going to have in 50 years' time are already here. Um, and some of those really innovative design approaches to retrofit are now starting to actually receive those big uh, architectural awards. So that's something that I find really um, hopeful. And it um, and it's for a number of reasons. It's not just retrofitting buildings, it's also retrofitting landscapes and infrastructures. But I think your point there about care, because I think this is, again, bringing a different ethic to our built environment. It's about saying, let's, instead of continuing to make new stuff, let's really look at how we care for the cities that we already have, care for each other, care for our buildings. Um, and, yeah start with what we've got, start with where we are um, and move forward, um, you know, beyond this endless craving of the new. Thank you. And we are over time, but I think we've covered off so much today in this really complex and exciting discussion. So if anyone has a question, please put up your hand. Um, we'll go over time. Yes, Bron. You can grab my microphone. Uh, I reflect this talk. Uh, I'm interested in how you Advocacy is a neb I'm going to just jump in there. And advocacy, you know, that one's a tough one to to uh, to measure. We do try, but then sometimes it's hard to pin down. So we were actually talking about that today, and and how much credit could we take for some changes that have been? I'm not going to be specific. Taken at the state government level, we'd like to say that it was all due to our advocacy, but it's a lot more complex than that. Sometimes you have a number of players, oftentimes a number of players saying the same thing in a different way, in a different form and in a different meeting. So um, it is important though to see, are, are we hitting our advocacy targets? Are we moving the needle or are we not? Do we walk away from that? And one of the things we've looked at through our work um, on climate is, is it having impact? And um, if it isn't having impact, we have to walk away from it because we do not have the time or the resources to, to waste on things that aren't aren't having impact. They might be nice, but if they're not really delivering that value, then we can't waste time on it anymore. So well, that's my quick answer, Bron. Yeah, I'm always a bit cautious about measuring everything um, because I think we can lose a lot. So I think what we, what we measure, and this is perhaps what the SDGs localisation project is, making sure we're measuring the right things and that we're, if there's, uh, instead of measuring, you know, economic growth in a hundred different ways, you know, let's maybe do less of that and measure things like health. But I think we also need to be cautious about trying to measure things that actually, as humans, we're very good at doing this, you know. We're talking and we can figure stuff out just by talking and deliberating and deciding together what we value rather than what we measure and those two things can be quite different. And I... Um, particularly look at the biodiversity realm and if you look at the biodiversity statistics of species extinction like it's 
you know, you will struggle to get out of bed in the morning. Like, it's really depressing. And I do wonder about the ecological community that has really tried to go down the natural capital route, tried to measure things, tried to go down the Costanza kind of ecological valuation idea as if if only we can get the right number, then they'll, t then they'll notice. And it just doesn't seem to happen. So we do have to think about values, politics, other things, um, other ways of achieving change, other ways of deciding, you know, what's good, what's right. Um, and yes, use numbers when they can be very powerful, um, but not use them to, for things that we'll, we'll never be able to stack up. If I can add to that as well, I think a lot of the right measures for value are already there. Right when uh, when Amelia spoke about you know if only trees gave off Wi-Fi instead of just oxygen, um, we know that the oxygen is good for us. We know that we value our green space. We know that we value our our social connections with people. Um, and I think that a conversation needs to be had at the very top, especially on the political level, federal government, state government, and maybe to a certain extent local government as well, is to talk about. We have these measures, how do we put them in our official targets? When we have our official strategies and our official policies and our KPIs, there's usually a budget figure attached to that. Um, so how can we sh make sure that we embed those other things, those other targets in there? Like, yes, I agree, we shouldn't be measuring everything, but I think it's also a question of putting the right measures in the right spot. It's not just about measuring growth through GDP, it's about measuring growth to how many more social connections do we have? How many? Um, how much more healthy is our community? Um, things like that. And if we can measure our performance as an economy and as a state and as a nation in measures other than that expressed by money, I think that should be part of the conversation for sure. Thank you all. No other questions? It's getting dark and cold. <laughs> um, we'll wrap up. Um, I'd like to thank everyone here on the panel. We're sitting with, you know, some of the best in Victoria, in Australia, if not internationally. So thank you for your time. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, and, yeah, if anyone wants to, a round of applause. Thank you. And thanks to Danielle. Um, also a plug, our final Design Excellence event, um, the Excellent City Series is on April 21, so it's Thursday in three weeks' time. Um, come along, we've got a huge panel. Um, it'll be a wrap-up of all three talks and um, deep diving into Design Excellence more broadly. So thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.